All right, here we go. Uh, my doctor gave me a new medicine, and uh, it said that you might feel drowsy. I feel wowsy, so I don't know what that means. So uh, I'm going to try to not float around the pulpit. You know, we'll see how that goes. So we're continuing our study in Paul's letter of the Roman believers. That first century congregation was made up of both diaspora Jews, Jews outside of the Holy Land, and Gentile God-fearers, not Baptist, Presbyterians, and Orthodox and Reformed Jews. So we want to keep that in mind. Their common faith in Jesus, in Yeshua, uh, existed at a time when the temple was still standing uh, in Jerusalem and in operation. And the believers in Jerusalem made access and use of the temple in that context. So we need to see this in a frame of mind that is historically accurate. So Paul's writing as the apostle to the Gentiles in anticipation of the day when he'll come be able to meet with them and minister to the Romans, the believing Romans uh, who are there. Uh, And he will state, as we saw last week, that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. By Greek he means Greek-speaking Gentile, the Gentiles. Uh, Then last week we saw that he made the claim that the Jew under the law is a sinner and would be judged by that law. And that the Gentile who didn't have the law had a conscience that God had written to some extent right and wrong in his heart. And uh, that would be the basis of his judgment. In other words, they'd be judged as sinners uh, because of their conscience condemning them or uh, justifying them. Paul said that the judgment of God, like the gospel, was to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. He keeps that repeating. What we're going to see is that his basic argument is that both Jews and Gentiles are sinners and that God's judgment in the future would be as certain as it was in the past when he judged the people in the time of Noah. Mankind, whether Jew or from the nations, sins in a violation of holiness that shows up in idolatry and fornication. Uh, These are abominations, violations of holiness, and in the harming of others, evil, that is done towards our fellow human being. He gives quite a list of that in, in Romans. Basically, he says, we've all sinned, we're all sinners, and we're without an excuse, because we know that we do wrong. Today we're going to see that Paul is addressing a difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. And I wish he would have started with the content at the beginning of verse 3 and then did the content, I mean chapter 3, and then did the content at the end of chapter 2. But he didn't write it that way because he's not writing in this Greco-Roman kind of logical format. He is doing a more Hebraic framework. So we'll take it from his perspective, but sometimes it it becomes hard to follow his argument. So we're going to pick it up at Romans chapter 2, verse 17. What he's going to do is talk about the Jews uh, and the law, and he's going to talk about their advantage being Jews because of the law, and then he's going to talk about something that's really important. He'll be addressing that throughout the rest of the book, which is a righteousness by faith that we'll talk more about next next time. So, Romans chapter 2, verses 17 
2 verse 20, he says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? So, what's, what's Paul doing here? Well, he is trying to address the Jewish believers at Rome, and he wants to get to a point that when they talk about what he's later going to call their advantage, if that advantage is not about them doing the word, but really about them just talking about the word and then judging other people, they end up condemning themselves. And so he says... If you claim to be a Jew, he's not talking to us. Uh, There's a lot of people in Christianity who think we're spiritual Israel and we're spiritual Jews. Paul's not doing any of that stuff. He's talking specifically about the ancient Hebrew people who at the time of Paul were called Jews because of their association with Judea and Jerusalem and that kind of framework. So that's the term. The way we use the word Jew now is more what he was talking about than what someone else might be talking about. And certainly isn't talking about spiritual Jews in the sense that we use the word spiritual. So he says, knowing the Torah is not doing the Torah. In fact, the hypocrisy, he says, is going to create a problem. So I want to pick up uh, at verse uh, 21. And go to verse 29. You therefore who teaches another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, are you stealing? You who say that you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, you're dishonoring God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Now he talks about this quote of the scriptures, that the Gentiles are blaspheming God because of the behavior of God's people. That's still true today. A lot of times people act inappropriately and then claim to be a believer and God gets the disrespect and the disrepute. So he wants to address the problem of boasting in the law. And so he says, So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, well, let me pick it up at verse 25 first. For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So, if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who physically is uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision, 
you're actually a transgressor of the law. Because he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and the praise is not from men, but from God. Now, Paul's going to unwind this over several chapters, but he just kind of dumps it all out here. So what's he saying? You can't claim this place as a Jew and be guilty of sin and violation of the Torah. You're not justified by knowing it. You're justified by doing it. Knowing that the Torah is not uh, knowing the Torah, but doing the Torah. And this is a hypocrisy that he says is causing the Gentiles to blaspheme God. So, he refers here to the circumcision, which is tied to the Abrahamic covenant. You guys are more familiar with that than other people. Most Christians think that circumcision is associated with the Mosaic covenant. It is in the Mosaic covenant, but it precedes that, goes back to Abraham, which Paul's going to talk about in our next uh, message next week. And so, he is saying that this is not about externals. It's about internals. Remember that when God gave Israel the Torah, he said, you will write these commandments on your heart. You will do them from the inside. This is not simply a performance on the outside. And so there are people who appear to be unrighteous, but claim to know God and the Torah. And Paul says, those are not the real Jews. He says, the, the real Jew is the one who is one inwardly. It's been changed, as the prophet said, in the heart. And circumcision is that of the heart, not the flesh. Done by the spirit, not done in conformance to the letter of the law. Now, this first section, he really goes after the Jewish believers at Rome. And as I said... I wish he would have started with chapter 3. So we're going to move to that and you'll see what I'm talking about. Because he's assuming things that I think they got. We don't always get. So, Romans chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. Then what advantage has the Jew and what's the benefit of circumcision? Notice he started with the negative. Now he's going to give the positive. Think I would have preferred, because we think that way, give us the positive, then tell us where things went wrong. We can follow that easier. He's doing it in a reverse order. He says, great in every respect. First of all, he says, they were entrusted with the oracles or the word of God. What then if some of them did not believe or did not remain faithful? Uh, their unbelief or lack of faithfulness will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man is found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. Now, the New American Standard here says when you are judged, there's an alternative. When you're judging, that matches the quote of what Paul is addressing in the Old Testament, because he's referring to David's prayer to God in his repentance. So, let's, let's address this. 
If Jews and Gentiles are all sinners, so what's the advantage of the Jew? Paul argues there's a great advantage. They were given and entrusted with the word of God. They had access to the scriptures. Later he's going to say, not only that, they have the covenants, they have the temple service, they have a lot that helps them to understand God that the Gentile doesn't have. Paul refers to us in the uh, Colossians letter as being, uh, or Ephesians letter as being without hope and without God in the world. So there is a clear advantage to having access to the Word of God, but not if you just have access to it. You have to be doing it, right? So he's talking about, about that. So he's, he points out that even if some of them were unfaithful, and they fell away, and they didn't actually believe, that doesn't mean that God is unfaithful. And so that word that they have is still beneficial. And then he quotes, let God be true and every man the liar. And then he talks about this, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. He's going back to Psalm 51 where David says, before you and in your sight only I have done this sin and I've done this evil that you may be justified and that you may be correct when you judge. In other words, God's word's very clear that we are the sinners and God is the righteous one. And so, in a sense, we're proving God's word when we sin. Which is an odd thing if you think about it. So, what does he say in verse 5? He begins to focus on this idea that our sin proves God's righteousness. Our unrighteousness shows his righteousness. So, quoting David, and then he says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And he says, I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. Otherwise, how could God judge the world? God has to judge his people. He has to judge the world because he is righteous. Even if our unrighteousness, in some sense, glorifies or manifests the righteousness of God. So in verse 7 he says, But if through my life the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I being judged as a sinner? In other words, there's a... You, you see this mindset. We read the story of Joseph and his brothers. And they sell him into slavery. And he goes into Egypt. And he ascends there with the blessing of God. And then ultimately is used to benefit them. And Joseph says, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. And you can just see the kind of human reasoning say, that says... That, that we helped God out. I mean, he couldn't, God couldn't be glorified in what happened here if I hadn't said, I hear this all the time from people. Well, I know I didn't. I, and I know in my own case that my rebellion against God has a lot to do with where I am now. But that's not an excuse of what I did. What I did was wrong. 
What God did was he, even in that context, worked for good. And the danger here is to think that we uh, should just go ahead and help God out even more by showing the contrast. And so that's his last line right here where he says in verse uh, 8, And why not say then, as some slanderously report, and some claim that we say, he's not saying we say it, but they're claiming this, let us do evil that good may come. He says their condemnation is just and obvious. Okay? There is no place, and Paul's going to go through this, because we're about to run into faith and grace and not of works kind of mindset. And immediately human thinking says, then I can do anything I want. Right? And God will get the glory because, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace. So Paul's anticipating this. And all through Romans, he keeps saying, well, then do we do this? No, God forbid. He's going to struggle with our human reasoning in that context. So, we get to uh, verse 9. And he says, so what then? Are we better than they? Now there's a context of this passage where he says, are we better than they? Are we worse than they? It's the idea of, so who's better, Jew or Gentile? He says, no, neither one. The Jews aren't worse. The Gentiles aren't worse. The Jews aren't better. The Gentiles aren't better. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, read Gentile, are under sin. As it is written, and now he's going to draw from the Psalms, and he's going to draw from the book of Isaiah, and he's going to say some pretty rough words. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none that understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. <clears throat> Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues are deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, at this point, our tendency is to say, yeah, I know, they're pretty bad. But that's why Paul put the other thing in there. If you say that these things are not good, and you do them, you condemn yourself. And Paul's going to remind us of that in the next verse. So he says, Now we know that whatever the Torah says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and that all the world may become accountable to God. This is spoken first to the Jew who knows the commandments, and then it expands to the rest of us. This is not a description of them. It's a description of us. It's a reminder that we are sinful. I've gone through several periods in my life where I feel like I'm better than I was before. 
I talked about this before. There are times when I think I'm okay. Then I realize I have selective memory about my past. And I have selective memory about my present. And I'm a little optimistic about my future in terms of my own righteousness. The deception of sin that Paul will talk about, and particularly when we get into chapter 7 when he says, even what I want to do, I end up not doing. I, I can't do it even when I'm trying. Is an important part of what he's building up to. And so what Paul says is, uh, we have no place to boast. Verse 20. Because by the works of the Torah, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the Torah comes the knowledge of sin. I, I, when I got exposed to this faith, I was told that God had made two ways of salvation. One was obey the commandments. And the other one was if you didn't obey the commandments, you could come to Jesus and get forgiveness. The Torah was never intended. Paul will talk about this all through Romans. The Torah was never intended for salvation. It was never intended to justify. It's a mirror. It's a measuring stick that we look at and we see how we measure up and how we look. And if we're honest, we'll say... I don't measure up. I've missed the mark. That's what sin is. I'm not adequate for this. I can't possibly attain this. So that you will be humbled before God because this gives us a knowledge of the depth of our sin. So that's what Paul's talking about in chapter uh, 3, verse 20. The works of the law good though they are, will never justify anybody. You cannot earn enough spiritual points in keeping the law to reach salvation. There is a common belief in Judaism and in Christianity that there is some kind of way of being a good person that God will save and a bad person that God will condemn. And Paul wants us to know we're all condemned. And you'd know that if you put yourself up against the commandments and you really take a good look at yourself in that mirror. So now he's going to introduce what is, I think, the heart of his gospel, the heart of the gospel of the apostles, the one that the church fathers uh, proclaimed, the one that the reformers cleaned up and, and pushed uh, back into the front of the the order of, of proclamation. And the one that we need to. The danger here is that Paul knows that when this is said, people think that what he's doing is he's trashing the Torah. And he's not going to do that. So keep that in mind as we read this. So now he says in verse 21, this is a verse that you should have if you're an underliner, this should be underlined in your Bible. I used to be an underliner, and then I was a highlighter, and now I don't do that, because pretty soon my whole Bible was underlined and highlighted. Then, you know, a man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
But now, apart from the Torah, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. I want you I want to hang out on this verse a second. Paul's saying, we now have a manifestation of a righteousness of God that is apart from the law and the prophets, but is testified to by the law and the prophets. In other words, the law and the prophets know two forms of righteousness. A righteousness of obedience that we can't attain. And a righteousness of God that he's going to argue is by faith. So here's what he says in verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified then as a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Notice he's now introduced both grace and faith. Grace and faith is a, an approach to righteousness, the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of man, that is told by the Torah, told by the prophets, but is not attained by the commandments and the covenants. He says, this is redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 24, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Propitiation. This is a word that a lot of people have difficulty with. It has the idea of God being appeased. People are always saying, why doesn't God just judge everybody now? You don't really want that because you're part of everybody, right? Uh, we there are people we want God to judge, right? But we don't we, we don't want to be judged, right? As the psalmist says, God, if you judged based on our behavior, who could stand, right? None of us could stand. So the idea here is that Jesus became the appeasement of God. His death, his resurrection has two things in it. One is the staying of God's wrath to give us time to come to faith. It opens up God's patience towards us and then for those of us who respond to that, it brings full atonement and forgiveness and all of those things. We see that in the ritual of Yom Kippur, especially when we do the high priest's uh, ceremony. So he says this propitiation in his blood is done through faith and it demonstrates his righteousness because the forbearance of God he has passed over the sins previously committed. Hasn't judged him yet. There's a forbearance going on here. We sometimes confuse forgiveness and forbearance. Forbearance is I'm holding off the judgment a forgiveness is I'm removing the condemnation. Those are not the same. Paul's going to address these. 
He says, this is a demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he will be just. God will be seen as righteous. And he will become the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This salvation is by grace, not our obedience. It is by faith, even that faith is given to us as a gift of God. As a result then, you have nowhere to go in your boasting. So he says, where then is the boasting? It's removed. It is our boasting about our condition versus someone else's that causes us to judge them and to condemn them. Keeps us from saying, except for the grace of God, my sin would be manifest like his. Where then is the boasting? It's excluded. By what law? One of works? No. If it was a on the basis of works then you could boast, I did it. But if it's not based on works, it's based on what he's done, you have no place to boast. By the law of faith. Verse 28, a often quoted and misunderstood verse. We maintain that a man is justified by faith independently or apart from the works of the law. Now, if you take that verse and just pull it out of context here, it sounds like the law's done. What he's saying is, there is nothing in the obedience to God that adds at all to your salvation. You can't add to your salvation. We'll see what you can add to, but you can't add to your salvation. And I say often, you know, if we were three or four times more righteous than we are now, we'd still be in no danger of earning our salvation. So he says, why does he say this? Why am I telling you this, Paul says. Is he the God of the Jews only? Well, he's got a covenant with them. So the salvation through that covenant, then you've got to go through, through that context. He says, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the nations also. God is the God of all people. He created all of us. He set the boundaries of the nations. Then he created Israel to have this advantage and for them to be a light so that when God interacted with them, we would, we would learn. Sometimes if you have an older brother in the family and he gets on dad's bad side, the second kid goes, hmm, I'll watch out for that, right? Now the third kid, who knows what they'll do, right? But, but that's, that's the notion that he's talking about here. Because he says, God who will justify, God's going to justify the circumcised, that is the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, through faith. Because he's one God, he's the God of both of them. God's justification of us is based on faith, not works. He's going to go through this again and again. 
So then the assumption is, and I'm coming to the end here, the assumption is, then, if it's based on faith, who cares about the rest of the Bible? I've heard people say that. In fact, I, I had a, a, a professor who carried a New Testament. I said, where's your, the rest of your Bible? He says, I don't need the rest of it. That's done away with. No, it's not for salvation. But salvation, there's more to what's going on here than salvation. There's the restoration of the creation, the keeping of all God's promises, all of that. So what Paul does is, and he does this several times, we're going to end with this verse. He says, so then do we nullify the law through faith? That would be the obvious assumption of human thinking. Well, if salvation is by grace through faith, who needs the the commandments? He says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. We sustain the law. We maintain that. What, What is going on here? He's going to explain that, and he's going to explain that using Abraham. So what is Paul's notion? We are not getting rid of the Torah. We're not getting rid of the commandments. We're not getting rid of the covenants. But they are not the basis of salvation. The basis of salvation for Jew and Gentile is faith and grace in the work of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. And therefore... We are not, by that message, either saying one of two things. Let's do evil, that good may come out of it. We're not saying that. And we're not saying, since it's by faith, we don't need the commandments. Right? So Paul's in full agreement with a passage that you guys are very familiar with, but maybe people listening are not. And that is Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to nullify or abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to bring them into full operation. Fulfill doesn't mean I'm going to complete them and remove them. It means to bring them into full operation. And I say to you, until heaven and earth passes, I check every morning, it's still there, right? Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. So until God completes all of his promises, including the promises to Israel that that Paul will talk about later in the book of Romans, all of that, not one jot or tittle is passed from the law, but you will not get saved or justified by doing the commandments, you will only see the depth of your sin. What you need is the righteousness of God that is by faith, not by works. So Jesus says this, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom. Doesn't say he won't be in the kingdom. The righteousness of obedience and the righteousness of faith are different righteousness. 
One is based on your stewardship of obedience out of gratitude to the Lord. That's why he says we establish the law. But it's not a basis for salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith. Whoever keeps them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the kingdom of heaven, people who have blown off the the law will be less in that. And those who have struggled to obey it, not to be saved, but to uh, show God's glory and gratitude in what they're doing, will be great in the kingdom. They'll both be in the kingdom. But how do you get in the kingdom? The next verse is critical. Here's what he says. But I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You've got to understand, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most obedient to the Torah of any of the groups. And Jesus said, that's not going to cut it. Why? Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It's the righteousness of God by faith. You will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's no getting into the kingdom of heaven by being a good person, even if we could be a good person. It comes by the righteousness of faith. And that's given to us by grace. And Paul's going to go back and forth on that and constantly remind us this does not nullify doing good. It does not nullify the commandments. It does not nullify any of those things. uh, But they are a different context. And it wasn't until I realized the righteousness of faith then enabled me to struggle with the righteousness of obedience without the condemnation that this became more clear. Now he's going to show this in the life of Abraham and use Abraham as his example because Abraham can be an example to the Jew and to the non-Jew because of the way God dealt with him. And we'll look at that next week. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful, God, that you uh, are a God of grace. You're a God of